It is still morning. Uh, Acts 28, I'm going to dive in, but before we do, a couple things I would ask just that you're praying for. The first one is this LGBT seminar that you just heard all about. I've, I sent out an email, and I sent one out this week, kind of addressing that a little bit, a uh, little bit more informationally as far as where we're at and all that kind of thing. And I sent an email pretty regularly like that. This one by far had the most responses. So I think that the, I'm, I'm confident there's a real need in this area of how do we reach out, how do we love, what do we do. Uh, some of our own families here have had to deal with this. We've had to deal with it. So I think it's a very prevalent thing in our society, but I think within the church there is a real, uh, what I've been, the response I've gotten is, I'm glad you're doing it, glad you're doing it, glad you're doing it. So if, we, if you would be praying for that, please. Now, I know other churches that have done these kinds of seminars, sometimes the, those that are violently opposed to Christianity and, the fact, and even to suggest that, that this can be changed, they'll show up. And so if you would just be praying for the Lord to refuge this building for us to be able to, all we want to do is gather together and learn how to love people, how to care for them. That's what we want. So just, just that, pray for that. And secondly, if you pray for me as I prepare for the book of Job, we're going to do it in eight weeks, and I really haven't, haven't suffered a whole lot at all. And so I say to the Lord, Lord, I don't want to suffer just so I have to go to this, or I don't want to go through this book just so I have to suffer, okay? So, but I would really ask for your prayers, honestly. Just what, what the Lord, because it's packed. So what the Lord would have for us in this area of suffering, because everyone suffers, and it's really relative to our own lives. I mean, something that might seem like nothing to someone is a lot to someone else, and vice versa. So we all have our the things that we deal with in, with which we, in which we suffer. And the thing about the book of Job is he never God never answers the wise. He answers who he is. That's his answer. And that might seem simplistic, but it's not simplistic at all. It is the He is the answer. So how do I understand God in the context of suffering is what we're going to look at. So those two things, if you would be praying, I would really appreciate it. Okay, so Acts 28, our last study, 28 chapters, 28 weeks or 28 studies. The key verse in the book of Acts, I want to put that up again just to start off our finale here, is you shall receive power, dunamis, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now there are three relationships to the Holy Spirit that we talked about. The Holy Spirit is with us before conversion. Jesus said this. The Holy Spirit is with us to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's his job. Our job as believers is not to convict people. Our job is to witness of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. When he has come, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So before we were saved, God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, was with us, bringing us to a place of repentance, hopefully. He is then in us at conversion. So Jesus, when he told the disciples, he's with you, will be in you, after he rose from the dead, he breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And I believe when he did that, they received the Holy Spirit. But then he said to them, wait for the promise of the Father, which you've heard from me. He said, wait. So here, wait, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Meaning that there's another experience of the Holy Spirit, the coming upon that happens either at salvation or subsequent to, depending on what you would believe about that. And what I say, whatever you believe about the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it, the bottom line is we all need the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Can you hear an amen? And he has been promised to us as the power, notice, when the Holy Spirit is coming, and you shall be witnesses to me. 
Our lives become then a, the voice, the witness, the testimony of who Jesus is in our lives. And you shall be witness to me in Jerusalem. Now here's the outline of the book of Acts. In Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Well, we're going to the end of the earth, as it were, today. We're going to end up in Rome. But I've titled it To Be Continued because the book of Acts really is open-ended. The book of Acts, as I've said before, you can't look at church history and know what God determined for the church. God's dynamic for the church, God's, God's uh, pattern for the church is the book of Acts. Because you look at church history and it's a mess. And that's the truth. A lot of things have been done in the name of the Lord that aren't the Lord at all. And so there's been a lot of that. We need to look at the book of Acts as our template, as our pattern. So as we, as we look at this whole story in the book of Acts, we're looking at God's picture template for the church for us to learn. So the key verse is Acts 1.8, to be continued. It's open-ended. God's still doing his work in the church. We are the church. Amen? We are the church. The living stones. Foundation Jesus and our relationship with him now becomes the, the conduit through whom he reaches the world with the gospel. So I'm not going to go. We've gone through three different series Hearing and responding to God, seeking and saving souls, and then finally, going and doing the, test, the, build, the making of a testimony. So this final one in Acts 28, to be continued, there are three things that I want to bring to your attention that spoke to me as I studied this chapter out. To be continued. What's to be continued? Well, first of all, the mysterious ways of God are continuing now and will continue forever. That God is, he has his purposes that he is working out in time and space that are eternal in their, in their origins. God himself. Secondly, what continues? We are to continue meeting people's needs. In other words, the love of God is to continue practically in how we're helping people when they need help or how we are being helped when we need help. That's, that's going to continue not only now but forever. God meets our needs. And he will continue to meet them through all eternity. He is sufficient to meet every need that we have. And then the final one, and we all know this, and a good closing, is making Jesus known. Jesus is exalted now, and he will be exalted forever. And that's the message we bring. We bring the message of the kingdom of God. So you have the purposes of God continuing now and forever. You have the love of God continuing now and forever. And you have the kingdom of God that we're to be preaching that is now, and we'll look at that briefly, and will be forever. So in Acts chapter 28, the first verse, it says, now when they had escaped, they found out, they didn't know where they were, shipwrecked, they found out that the island was called Malta. So here they are taking this voyage, and we, we've gone through it. It was horrendous uh, voyage. During it, they hit these storms for two for two weeks, they're stranded out in the middle of the Aegean Sea. They don't know what's going on. They're thinking they're dead. Then Paul gets this, gets this uh, message from God. No, you're not going to die. The ship's going to be destroyed, but everyone's going to live. So he tells everyone on the ship. He begins to take control. He said the ship's going to be wasted. It was. They were shipwrecked on the island of Malta. They don't even know what island it is. And so there's no doubt in my mind, as with your own stories, that this was repeated several times by everyone that was on that, all 276 of them said, man, I got to tell you about something that happened on this ship. 
I mean, we're on the ship. We thought we're dead. This guy named Paul stands up. He says, hey, we're all going to live. Just got to stay on the ship and so forth. And so it, and rightfully so. We have, all have amazing stories to tell people. I hope that you rec- recognize that you have an amazing story as the testimony is. It's a, per- a name and a person. We looked at that early on in the book of Acts. But here's what I want to share in this first uh, verse 1 and 11 through 16. There's a story behind the story. Behind all of our stories, there's a story. And that story is worth a good chunk of our time. In fact, most of it this morning. I just want to share some things that I find are fabulous. That story is the reality of the providence of God. Now, what is the providence of God? I'm going to put a couple definitions up here. Providence is the mean by which God directs all things, both animate and inanimate, seen and unseen, good and evil, toward a worthy purpose, which means his will must finally prevail, unquote. And I say, amen. In other words, God's in control. We looked at this a little bit last week. We'll certainly be looking at some of these facets when we get to the book of Job. So the word providence means essentially foresight or making provision beforehand. That's providence. So God not only looks ahead to make provision for his goals, but infallibly accomplishes what he sets out to do. He's going to accomplish it. And because it it is God's governance that is in view, it encompasses everything in the universe. From the creation of the world to its consummation, inclusive of every aspect of human existence and destiny. Now that should comfort you as a believer, that God is providentially working in our lives. I'll talk a little bit more about this, but here's a second definition, if it can help. Providence is the sovereign, divine superintendence of all things, guiding them toward their divinely predetermined end in a way, this is important, in a way that is consistent with their created nature, all to the glory and praise of God. God's purposes will be accomplished. There will be no exceptions. He will accomplish what he said he will. J. Vernon McGee, and many of you know J. Vernon McGee. He's our, one of our, some of us, our favorite, uh, beloved. He says this, quote, Providence is the unseen rudder on the ship of state, just like we've been talking about this voyage, and we talked about this last week. He says, God is the pilot at the wheel during the night watch. When God is not at the steering wheel, he is the backseat driver. Now, most of us don't like backseat driver, but I'll tell you what, I like God being my backseat driver. God is like the coach who calls the signals from the bench. As someone has said, God makes great doors swing on little hinges. Now, he goes on, and I love this picture. J. Vernon McGee's great. He talks about Exodus 2, where Moses, as a little baby, was to be killed, according to Pharaoh's commands. Well, his mother puts him in a little basket, pitches it, you know, puts tar on it, and sends it down the Nile. He talks about the providence of God in this way. He says, the Lord pinched little Moses, and he let out a yell. And the cry reached the heart of the princess, and God used it to change the destiny of a people. Now, I never thought of God pinching little Moses, but God is working, and it's mysterious, and that's why the mysterious ways of God are continuing. It's a mysterious thing. 
It's like Mordecai saying to, to Esther, yet who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai is saying to her, hey, you need to go in before the king. You need to go in, and hopefully the golden scepter, because, but if, if you go in and it doesn't work, God's going to raise up deliverance from someone else. But how do you know? But right now, God has you where he has you through his providential working, his plan out for his people. And really, in every place we are, that's, that's a good thing to understand and, and seek to understand that God is, is providentially working. The divine, sovereign, and benevolent control of all things by God is the underlying premise of everything that is taught in the Scriptures. He's the story behind the story. Now, listen to this carefully. It is impossible that anything or anyone, whether in heaven or on earth, whether supernatural being, king, or simple peasant, should imagine that they are self-sufficient or answerable only to themselves. Listen, we are answerable to God. Our lives are answerable to him. We will all stand before him and give an account for what we've done in living our lives out. King Nebuchadnezzar was humbled for seven years to learn that lesson. He went out and said, man, look at this Babylon I built. Aren't I something else? And then God took him for seven years, and he went basically insane. His fingernails were grown out, his hair, and he was out of his mind for seven years. And then he writes this fantastic testimony, this pagan king, the most powerful ruler in the world. God takes him for seven times, seven years, it's believed, and there he is learning a lesson. I'm telling you, this guy was a tough cookie to crack. <laughs> so here's what he wrote, the testimony. Daniel 4:34. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will, notice, in the armies, in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's Nebuchadnezzar. See, that's the lesson. That's understanding God's sovereign providence in everything that's going on. We do well to understand that God is, yes, behind the stories, but we do well to let him be our story. Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. I'm giving you a few passages if you're jotting them down, taking notes, so you can look at these. And there are zillion, well, I better not <laughs> add. But there are a lot of scriptures that we could go to that talk about God's sovereign providence over all things. He's running the universe today just like he always has. As we looked at last week, God's at the helm of all of life. And so as I'm reading this shipwreck and thinking through these things, God at the helm of all life, it's absolutely amazing thing to me that God has called me, and not only me, but every believer, to co-mission with him in working out his plan of redemption and eventually the exaltation of his son in glory in his kingdom. We get to partner with God 
I like to call it the Kodash mission. We've been given a great commission. We've been given this great thing called God partnering with us in order to accomplish his plans, his purposes in our lives, through our lives, to bring about his eternal plan to his glory and his praise. It's amazing to me. God who made and governs the universe has a plan for it, and he's included us in that plan. Do I understand that? I don't, but it blows my mind. Blows my mind. What is man that you're mindful of, the son of man, that you would even visit him? Never mind, enter into a, this, this, this redemption thing on earth. He says, Psalm 33, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. He has a plan for your life. If you don't know him today, you haven't really, maybe you haven't given a whole lot of thought to this, or maybe you've given a lot of thought to it, but you've never surrendered your life into the hands of an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God. He sent Jesus Christ. That was part of his eternal plan. We'll look at that in a moment. He sent him so that you might know him and enter into that yourself. And I'm hoping that today will be that day for you. We're going to give a Jesus call. It's not an altar call. It's not a table call. It's not a person call. It's the person. It's Jesus who's calling you to himself that he might forgive you of all your sins, give you eternal life, enter into the kingdom of God, and participate in this amazing thing that God is doing in all of his plans and all of his purposes that includes you. Uniquely. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. And as I purposed, so it shall stand. 27. The Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? No one. That's the answer. God's will and purpose are eternally realized in and through Jesus Christ. Christ. So a, a passage we all know very well. You've known the Lord for any time. A Christmas passage. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born. That's hum the human side. Unto us a son is given. That's the divine side. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called, here it is, wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, there shall, his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. Then the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It's staggering to me. God laid it all out, and now he's working it all out. And so Galatians, Paul says this. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son. God's timing. Jesus came into this world. God's timing. God's purposes. God's plan. God has always been personally and directly involved in human affairs. Ultimately becoming one with us through the incarnation of his son for our redemption. You can't get closer than that. He became a man. God's plan, God's purpose. This was part of the eternal purpose that existed before the world began and was fulfilled in time at the moment of God's own choosing. The fullness of time. 
So if I might, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 14. In him, Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Through, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Listen, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. He's brought us into it. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and on earth, in him. In him also we obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. This is all a part of God's plan to redeem us and save us. He goes on to say, in whom also, having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our redemption until the inheritance, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now I hope this is, is a little, I, I just think what God has done for us and what he's continuing to do for us will go on forever. Forever. Why did he do that? Well, you know, we were worth it. No, a holy, just, well, to God, we were worth it. Let me put it that way. But can we offer anything to him? All we can do is offer back to him what he gave to us, and that is our very souls. Say, Lord, I'm yours. Take me. Take me along. Put me where you want me. Put me in your plan. I, 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 I know that's why you created me. To know you, this is eternal life. They may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. You see, although the plan of God has been partially revealed to us, in its totality, it remains an ultimate mystery. How this works. We are not capable of grasping how God's work, God works sovereignly within the choices we make because God himself is ultimately way beyond us. So it's just some things, even like the Trinity, to chew on a little bit. Here's a great quote for the providence of God. I like this probably the best. Simple. Providence means that the hand of God is in the glove of human events. It's the story behind our story. You know, many of you know this hymn. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his faithful mercies who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace Divinest comfort, heir by faith in him to dwell. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. I am his and he is mine. I am secure in him, assured of my destiny, in eternity with him forever and ever. Why? Because Jesus came at the fullness of time to die for me and offer me this great inheritance through faith. And so just quickly, I want to put this map up here to finish our journey. Last week we ended up in chapter 10. Look at verse 11 now. After three months we sailed an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers which had wintered at the island. Verse 12. And landing at Syracuse, uh, number 11, we stayed there, we stayed three days. From there we circled around and reached Reagan, number 12. 
After one day, the south wind blew, and the next day we came to Petuli, number 13, where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days, and so we went toward Rome. Now, verse 15, and from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appy Forum and three inns, number 14. Now, Appy Forum was 43 miles from Rome, and this other place, the three inns, was 33 miles. So this was quite a trek, but the brethren are saying, hey, they're coming, we want to go meet them. And really, the, the, uh, in the Greek literature, this whole idea of an, an, it speaks of an entourage. So this whole group of brethren, hey, there's nothing like the brethren coming to meet you when you're a little bit unsure about what it's going to be like. And I think we see with Paul, notice verse 15 again. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. So I think Paul was a little apprehensive about what was going to happen now. And so here come the brethren. And I'll tell you what. However God's working out his plans and purposes, we need one another. We need the brethren. When there's, when there's apprehension, when there's fears, when there's things going on, we need each other, don't we? I think the family of God is pretty cool. I'm glad I get to be a part of it. Now, you might wish I wasn't a part of it, but tough luck. I'm, I'm a part of it. I'm your family. Now, we came, verse 16, number 15 here. We came to Rome. That's where Jesus said, you're going to get to Rome. The centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldiers who, guard, who guarded him. So, number one, the mysterious ways of God. Secondly, and I'm just going to leave it with you time-wise, it's meeting people's needs. As they land on that island from verse 2 to 10, it's interesting, but there's, a, there's helping out from both sides. Both those, those who are on the island and Paul himself and those were helping. They were helping meet needs. Now, one of them came with nothing to give, and yet he was gathering sticks. Paul was. He was praying for them. Paul was. The others, the, the, the natives on the island, start a fire. They see the need. See, it's just a natural, really, part of what God created us to be is to help one another. And obviously the gospel and what we're called to is to help each other. And so meeting people's needs will continue now and forever. Ultimately, God is going to meet every need that we have through all eternity. The third thing I want to share in closing, I'm skipping over is making Jesus known. Now you know this, making Jesus known. In other words, the kingdom of God. Notice in verse 17. It came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, now he's in Rome now, he's arrived there, he's a little apprehensive, the brethren come, he calls them together. He said to them, men and brethren, verse 17, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it. So Paul, again, we've gotten this already. But Paul, in being tried again and again, the Jews were wanting to kill him. They plotted it. They planned it. Didn't work. Didn't work. And Paul knew that. So his only recourse was politically, if you will, to call and say, I'm, I'm gonna, I need the protection here. I'm going to call to appeal to Caesar. And he knew that he would have the protection that he needed at that time. So he's saying, but when the Jews spoke against, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had done anything of which to accuse my nation. So Paul's thinking that they have this understanding that he was speaking against Israel, speaking against Judaism. He wasn't. He loved Judaism. He loved the nation Israel. In fact, Romans 9 said, I could wish myself a curse for my brethren, 
the Jews. Paul said, I'd give up my salvation. He loved them. He would have died for them if that would have helped, which it wouldn't. For this reason, 20, therefore I've called for you to see you and speak with you because for the hope of Israel, I'm bound with this chain. That's why I'm here. It's because I'm wanting what you're wanting, what our scriptures tell us. Then they said to him, we neither receive letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. So this is interesting to me because they were speaking evil of them all over the place, but somehow it hadn't reached Rome. But what had reached Rome, verse 22, but we desire to hear from you what you think, what you think for concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. The sect being believing Jews who came to Christ. They're calling it a sect. They wanted to stamp it out. Paul himself wanted to at one point. So when they had pointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God. How? Persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. Now, Paul is in his element, an all-day prayer meeting. Now, I can relate to that. Uh, Excuse me, Bible study. I can relate to that. And we're not going to stay all day. You're saying, oh, good. But we'll be here a little while longer, okay? Paul's in his element. Now, what's he talking about? Two things. The kingdom of God by talking about Jesus from the scriptures. He's the promised Messiah. He's the promised king. He's the promised coming conqueror. Notice verse 30. Same thing. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, Preaching the same thing, the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. So the message of the kingdom is ours. Make Jesus known. The message concerning Jesus, the promised Messiah, make him known. That's our commission, the great commission. It's to be continued, to explain the kingdom of God, to cons- the things concerning Jesus Christ. That's the message that we bring. Now, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled when he came. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Note, Jesus did not say reform and believe the gospel. He did not say reflect and believe the gospel. He did not say reboot And believe the gospel. He said repent and believe the gospel. Entrance into the kingdom of God is through repentance. Turning from your sin. Turning to Christ at the cross where your sin was paid for. And saying to God I need your forgiveness. Would you forgive me? And then turning to God in repentance. Believing God. Receive from him eternal life. And thus we shall ever be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as his subjects. We are to be preaching and teaching the kingdom of God. Now, what is the kingdom of God? I'm going to give you three couplets very quickly. We could talk about this. There are differences of opinion on all of these things. uh, Well, on some of them anyway. But I, I just want to give them to you as I understand them. Characteristics of the kingdom of God. First of all, it's internal and spiritual. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. That's Luke chapter 17, verse 21. It is internal and spiritual. Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So it's spiritual in nature, for sure. Secondly, listen carefully. The kingdom of God is exclusive and it is eternal. Not everyone gets into the kingdom of God. Jesus said you must be born again. 
There must be a transaction that takes place between you and God where you confess your sins, you put all your sins on the cross where they are, and you confess to him, and then he gives you, it's, it's a great exchange, I'll tell you, all of your sin for all of his righteousness. All of your bad for all of his good. Why? Not because of anything you've done, but because Jesus Christ did it all for you. But your choice is, do I want to receive that kingdom, entrance? So, G- so Paul said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? They will not. He gives a little list. He says, first of all, do not be deceived, period. Do not be deceived, period. Don't be deceived about this. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortions will inherit the kingdom of God, period. But he says, but such were some of you. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Thank God we have through our faith in Christ. The final couplet is it's external and literal. In Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 2, six times in every consecutive verse, it talks about this thousand-year kingdom. I believe it's literal. And so six times, and I believe that we are going to rule and reign with Christ in a literal kingdom that he will set up on planet earth, that we will rule and reign with him as kings and priests to our God. And then, I don't know what's coming, but I'm looking forward to what God's got planned because then there's an eternal thing that we don't know anything about that he's going to bring about when he's completed his plan for in these areas of his kingdom. So let me, let me go to verse uh, 25 with you. We want to do a Jesus call in communion. Well, verse 24. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. It's a mystery on how that works. I don't know how that works. You preach the kingdom, the same exact message. You preach the, Jesus Christ, who he is, the same exact message. And some believe and some don't. And I don't know why that is. But notice, so when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers. Now, what did he say? He said to, to them, let me get to it, verse 25, saying, go to this people and say, hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people, notice, it's the heart problem. Not that God does not want to save. It's a heart problem. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes, they they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. In other words, the problem's the heart. The problem's not wanting to see it. The problem's not wanting to hear what God has to say. Now back at verse 25, notice what it says there. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly. Paul is is saying the Holy Spirit, listen, the Holy Spirit is speaking through the word of God. It's his uh, infallible word of God inspired God breathed. He's describing his belief in the inspiration of the scriptures. The Holy Spirit said this. Not some prophet, the Holy Spirit through, yes, human means, spoke this, said this. Now before I go on to what I want to close with. I was disheartened again this morning. I've added this to my notes. When I saw on front page of www.foxnews.com, this is what I saw. 
Take another look. Andy Stanley. Why are we seeing so many people leave the church? So naturally, I clicked and read this. Five reasons people leave the church. Let me say this. It, it burdens my heart. It breaks my heart. The number one thing he wrote, we tell people the Bible is the basis of Christianity. That's what he wrote. He's also said it. He said, it's not. It's Jesus. Now, I get that. I understand somewhat. I'll go on. He wrote, when our faith stands on anything other than Christ, we put ourselves and others in positions to fall. I wrote here, Pastor Anley, what are you saying? Are you saying the Bible's the problem? Now, he would say, no, I'm not saying that. The, would you say the Bible is the number one reason people are, having, are leaving the church? I say, you are wrong, deadly wrong. Again, it breaks my heart. Because the simplicity of the word of God and the power of the word of God to rob us, to rob a believer, to get a believer doubting about God's word, to me is paramount to blasphemy. <laughs> James, by the way, I have learned so much from Andy Stanley. I have. But James said this, brethren, my brethren, let not many become teachers knowing that we shall receive the stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. He who does not stumble in word is a perfect man able to bridle his own body. So I, this is what I wrote. I'm reading it because I want to make sure I'm communicating as best as I can my burden. So lately, Pastor Stanley has ma been making similar statements about the Bible. In my humble opinion, they are at best confusing and at worst diabolical. I who have learned a lot from Pastor Stanley, I'm losing hope that he is simply stumbling in word. But is seeking to unhitch the church from the centrality of the word of God, Old Testament and New Testament. As the foundation upon which our faith is anchored, our faith is established, our faith is built, our faith is explained, and our faith grows. It's the word of God. God said he exalts his word above his name. I believe that the word of God is the basis of Christianity, ultimately revealed through the incarnation of the very word of God himself, Jesus Christ, in the redemption of our lives through the living, incarnate son of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw him as the eternal life. We saw the word of God. It was with God. It was, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh. Now I hope, I hope here that we'll, we'll take to heart how so important we believe that the Holy Spirit is speaking through the word of God. The Spirit of God working through the Word of God to change the people of God. And let me say to you, the Word of God, the gospel, 
is the beginning of God's redemptive work, changing people's lives forever and ever. And you rob that word. So what are we to do? Well, we got to go out and convince them. Now, that's not saying we don't have a reason for the hope that lies in us. We need to go out and we need to convict them. No, we talked about the Holy Spirit convicts. Our job is to give to them the gospel, the seed of the gospel. And in the gospel, Jesus gave the parable of the, of the sower. That seed has all the potential to bring forth life. But it depends on the response of the soil. It depends on the condition of the heart. And so when a person's heart is hardened, it doesn't go anywhere. When the person's heart is, is fraught with cares and dis, all the things of this life, then it gets tangled up and choked out. But it's the word of God that's the seed, that's all that's necessary for life and godliness, for us to grow in our faith and know who God is. It's explained in the scriptures. We have it in the scriptures. The scriptures are alive and powerful, sharp than any two-edged sword. They can divide between thoughts and intents of the heart. And, and there's no one naked. Everyone's open and naked before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God has given to us his word, not for him his sake or his he's given to for our sake that we might know what he's saying and not be confused and that's why I get I, I, it burdens me tremendously now there's some confusion going on well what, do, what part of the Bible do we believe what's happening I can tell you one of the most encouraging things that happens to me and it happens to me fairly regularly and I love it people come to me and say you know I just love you're going through the Bible. And you know, I look at them and say, you know, it's very confusing to me. In fact, I would not be doing what I'm doing were me having to come up with some, I mean, <laughs> I love, we're just going to go through the Bible. And I say, how do churches miss that so quickly? The life. Well, I could go on and on, but you hear my heart on that. So go to the people and say to them, but they're not going to hear. So here's the question. The question is not, what is God saying? That's not the question here. That's what he's addressing. The question is, knowing what God has already said, how will you respond? That's the question. You are here today, and you do not yet know God as your God personally, you have not yet come to faith in Christ. I believe that you've heard clearly today what's necessary for you to do that. I believe that the Holy Spirit of God is convicting you of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. I believe that because that's what Jesus said he does. So you're a little squirmy about the idea that you might be guilty before God. Let me say to you, you are. You might be feeling squirmy that you know you haven't lived a perfect life. Let me say to you, you haven't. You may be a little uncomfortable with considering and thinking about what's going to happen when I die. And there's a judgment and there's hell and there's heaven. And let me say to you, it's real. So the Holy Spirit is convicting you. So I hope you're a little wiggly if you hadn't come to Christ yet. The decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is the most important decision you'll ever make bar none. None even close to that. It's the division between heaven and hell. Where are you going to spend eternity? It's your decision. God in his providence has you here today to hear again. God will continue to direct you because he loves you. The Holy Spirit will continue to convict you because he loves you. He'll continue to convict you of righteousness because he loves you. He'll continue to convict you of heaven and hell because he loves you. I came back to Christ and I came to Christ and back to Christ because I was afraid. I didn't want to go to hell. I say, thank you, Holy Spirit. Because it's real. So 
Would you? Well, let me read this one little hymn again, and then I'd like to pray, because I want to give you an opportunity. In the brokenness of God's heart to you, that was demonstrated when Jesus died on the cross, and they pierced him with that sword, and blood and water came out. Some have said he died of a broken heart. So he so loves you, he gave his only begotten son, that if you will believe in him, you will not perish. You will have eternal life. And thus this old hymn says it well. There is a time, we know not when, a point we know not where, that marks the destiny of men to glory or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path. The hidden boundaries between, the hidden boundary between God's patience and wrath. The refrain goes like this. Oh, come today, do not delay. Too late it soon will be. To Jesus fly, for mercy cry. He waits to welcome thee. Would you bow your heads with me and pray? Jesus wants to welcome you into his forever kingdom this morning, this afternoon. He came to die so that you might live. And so if you're here and you do not yet know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you have really no assurance in your heart. In fact, you have, it's uncomfortable to think about some of these things that we've talked about this morning. May I say to you that it's because God loves you that you're here It's because he loves you that he sent his son to die on a cross for you, a hideous death. And we're going to take communion in a moment. And all he's wanting for you is to come to him and say, would you forgive me? I'm turning from that old life. I want to walk with you. I want to know you. I want to live for you. This old life has left me empty. It's left me with no hope. It's left me not knowing what's going to happen. But Jesus, you would give me eternal life and you will promise me. And all the promises of God are yea and amen in him. He will give you life. He'll give you assurance. So three things I'm going to ask you to do. Number one, just raise up your hand and say, I want to get right with God. I need to know that my sins are forgiven. That though I have not lived a perfect life, Jesus did for me. I need to know that when I die, my destiny is certain in heaven. Second, I'm going to ask you to stand up because in doing that, you're obeying the gospel. And as you do that, all the excuses, all the fears, all the reasons you haven't done it up till now don't matter. They'll be washed away because now you're making that decision, confessing before men. He will confess you before his Father in heaven. Then third, I'm going to ask you to walk up to the tables and there'll be someone there to join you before the throne and love of God, to give your life to Christ through repentance and faith. So if that's you, as we're praying, all the believers in the room, we're praying. It's a battle and we understand that. If you want to say yes to Jesus today, would you just slip up your hand and keep that up so that I can see that? I don't want to miss anybody. We'll pray. I believe there is a battle going on in someone's heart right now. We'll pray. You know you need to get right with God. Very simple step, a little scary. We understand that. I'll tell you, the Lord wipes it all away once you make that decision.
to take communion. Now, this is for the believers in the room, and I'm hoping we're all believers this morning, which is fantastic. Jesus said, as often as we take the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim his death until he comes. So communion really is a way to look back at what Jesus has done for us on the cross. It's a time to look forward because he's coming again. And then a time just to reflect on where we're at today in our relationship with the Lord. So it's a time, maybe, you're, maybe there's some area of sin in your life. Maybe there's some battles you're face fighting. Whatever it might be, just personally with Jesus. To kind of close yourself in with him and bring your heart to him as we remember. You're remembering, declaring his death until he comes. And this life is so amazing with him. It's so important for him. So as you get the, these two emblems, just hold them. And I'll t I'll, we'll go through them together as the body of Christ once we all have them.